This is a main hustle media podcast. Hello, and welcome to the show. My name is Jackie O, and you're listening to Militantly Mixed. Yo, this is Rashani from the single simulcast. And when I'm not making you laugh or making up parody songs, I'm kicking back listening to Militantly Mixed. Main Hustle Media podcasts are recorded on the ancestral lands of the Chumash, Tongva, Karankwa, and Hohokam people. And I wish to pay my respects to the people of those nations, both past and present. Konnichi, what's up, primos? Welcome to Militantly Mixed, the podcast about race and identity from the mixed race perspective. I am your sir auntie, Charmaine Fury, a.k.a. Deblasian Blurred, and this is episode 201. And I am also just a few days over two weeks until I move to Merida, Mexico. I am just a few days until I go to Austin to speak at the BIPOC Pop Fest at UT. Um, and it's a week away until I can get dental surgery, emergency dental surgery, if I can afford it. Uh, needless to say, with this being, with it being this close to our move and with all the chaos that has happened over the last week and a half that I can tell you all about, um, I, I am like extremely overwhelmed right now. More so, I made room for being overwhelmed at this time. That's why I recorded all my interviews back in December and, and uh, January so I can have them edited and ready to go. And all I had to do was record my intros. But um, yeah, I did get caught. I did. It did catch up to me. So there were still a couple interviews that I, I had yet to um, edit. And of course, there's the recording of the intros. Uh, I am just beyond overwhelmed at this point. So much has happened. Uh, in the last week, I don't think I got a chance to, to say it on last week's episode because I believe I recorded my intro before this, but last Saturday I was eating a very soft spicy tuna roll and my back molar broke, my crown broke, and uh, it broke in such a bad way that I have to now have my whole tooth pulled, which um, not something I talk about very often. It is a major fear in my life to have my actual permanent teeth pulled out of my head. Number of family members, we don't have the strongest enamel in my family. And uh, I also uh, had bottle rot as a child, which has a permanent impact on your permanent teeth. And so it's been a major fear that eventually I would lose some of my teeth and I never wanted that to happen. And the first it's now happened. Um, so I've been dealing with sort of the mental health aspects of having to come to terms with the fact that one of my teeth are going to be pulled. And then on top of that, the dentist at the emergency uh, dental place tried to pull my tooth for about an hour and failed. And in that process, he damaged my cheek and my jaw is still swollen and in pain a week later. I've still been trying to maintain all my podcasting and all that other kind of stuff that I have to get done. But I've been in extreme pain for the last week and will continue to do so until this tooth is removed. Um, which was supposed to happen today, the day I'm recording, but unfortunately I can't afford it yet. So I put it back a week while I'm sitting here trying to figure out how to f gain an extra $1,600 that I don't have access to, to pay for my surgery. <sighs> so needless to say, the combination of being in constant pain and stressed out about the money and stressed out about the move and knowing that I have to speak in a couple of days, um, and knowing that... I also have to squeeze in getting my cats examined because there's this official examination they need to get before we go to Mexico that you either do within, you know, the month prior. Just learning that that price is raised to about $300 a cat and I have four cats. Um, I'm, I'm just like barely keeping it together because <laughs> I don't know how to get an extra... Uh, $2,800 to get me to actual, just to get me through the next two weeks. Like, I don't know where I'm going to get it and I'm freaking out. So needless to say, life is stressful. I'm very glad that I got these interviews uh, recorded and mostly edited before um, this period. But um, even just where I'm at now, just to finish out March with 
the show before my mental health hiatus that picks up in April, which was already scheduled and always is, even just to get me to that is very difficult for me right now. So I'm a little bit overwhelmed. I just want to put that out as a full disclosure thing because what I have decided in this effort to give myself more grace and room to be a regular ass person, um, I acknowledge that I have a tendency to stack on myself. I will stack responsibilities or obligations or whatever and just say I can handle it, I can take it. Um, but I'm trying to not do that to myself as much anymore. And um, a couple of days ago, I kind of realized that overwhelming sensation was getting the better of me. And so I reached out to Teresa to, to ask if um, uh, she wouldn't also mind if I extended the submission date to the Be Your Mixed Ass Self Anthology, which she did also agree to. Uh, so the Be Your Mixed Ass Self Anthology is the project of 2023. And the only person creating deadlines for that is myself and Teresa. So with that being the case, there's no reason why I had to have such a hard line in March 15th. I just wanted to give myself some room to be able to um, start the editing process in April during the mental health hiatus. Um, but managing the submissions even right now is quite a lot. Um, even though they're not coming in every single day, it does require some effort every time. So I'm going to give myself a little bit of grace and I am going to extend the submission date to April 15th. And thank you to everybody who has submitted so far, uh, because every time I see a submission comes through, it, it, you know, makes this a reality. It makes this like, oh, this is really finally happening. This thing that I've wanted to do forever is finally happening. Um, just in the last week, we received a couple extra essay submissions, which is not quite evened us out, but um, because there are more poems than um, essays, but I, I'm, I'm happy to see that gap close a little, although I do expect there to be more poetry than essays generally anyway, um, by nature of, you know, length and the amount that the fact that people will submit up to three poems in, um, in some cases. Um, so yeah, we're going to extend that date. So by the time this episode airs, uh, it should already be on the website and the Instagram should have the announcement there as well. Um, uh, so for those of you who might have felt like you were a little bit rushed um, to, you now have that little bit of time, that extra month to complete your work uh, so that we can start our editing and review process, our review and editing process um, in late April is when that's going to start now. Um but I'm, I'm, I'm so excited we're getting entries in. Uh, right now, it's a kind of a mix between people who I am not familiar with and people who I know in terms of engaging with the show. In terms of the people that I'm not familiar with, from what I understand, um, the people who have shared the posts is the reason why a lot of that has happened. So shout out to Sarah Lotus from the Mix Bloom Room, uh, Dr. Jen Noble, Blasia March, Mix Present, uh, mask the multiracial Americans of Southern California, um, and then just listeners. I've seen I've seen some of y'all push and share. Uh, not to mention the Mixanti Confidential blog as well and platform. So people are finding us because of those shares, and um, that's going to make this anthology a lot more uh, diverse and broad with all these different stories that we as mixed people have to tell. So again, please go to the militantlymixed.com website and click on the Be Your Mixed Ass Self Anthology tab at the top of the page. I'll review all of those guidelines to make sure that your submission will qualify. And then you can uh, pay your submission fee there on the uh, button that's on that page. And then you can send your submission in either Word or PDF. Um, either way works for me to Charmaine at militantlymixed.com, which I normally spell out. But if you don't know, just go to the website because you have to go to the website anyway to even do your submission. So, boom. Um, but again, thank you so much for people that are participating in it. And so and so far, it is, it, it's really been like heartening to know that this thing is going to happen. And I'm very grateful for that. And before we get into today's episode, I do want to remind you all that Militantly Mix is a fan-sponsored podcast, and it is with the support of the fans that this show is even possible to keep going um, at the moment. If you would like to support the show, you can donate as low as a dollar a month to as high as anything you wish, and there are different reward levels depending on what you choose. And let me tell you, the more dollar a month folks we get, the more stable Militantly Mix is, and... Um, uh, 
I would seriously like if I had a hundred dollar a month sponsors, uh, the show would feel a lot more stable than it does at the moment because I actually have about a twenty, fifty, and a hundred dollar or not a lot, but I have twenty, fifty, and hundred dollar sponsors and when something happens in their life and they have to pull out for a month or two that has a really big impact on the show which just recently happened uh, which it swings us back into that danger zone of okay now I got to figure out what to sell so that I can uh, pay for the show this month um hopefully we'll get those folks back I did get a, a message from one of them that said it was a temporary thing but for those of you who are listening right now, given how many people we have that listen to the show, if even just a hundred of you could donate a dollar a month or $12 a year, that would help really with the stability of Militantly Mixed. So I encourage that if you enjoy the show, if it gives you life in any way, shape or form, if even a single episode was very meaningful, if you wouldn't mind considering donating on Patreon at a dollar a month, um, because it will really help keep us going and growing. And to do that, you go to patreon.com slash militantlymixed. That link is in the show notes as well for you, or you can uh, click a link to it on the Militantly Mixed website. And um, again, that's just how you keep the show going and growing. If you would like to drop some coins in the tip jar and not necessarily participate in a monthly sponsorship, you can go to paypal.me slash militantly mix which is also linked in the show notes and drop some coins in that tip jar i do have some folks that do that kind of regularly and i appreciate that as well it all goes into the same bank account for militantly mix uh to keep us going and growing and that that in addition to maybe buying a t-shirt or a mug on the militantly mix website are, are the ways that you can kind of help the show in a financially and now that we're being hosted on anchor you can also uh click the listener support link on the anchor.fm slash militantly mix page also linked in the show notes um, in case you want to sponsor the show that way but patreon is the way where rewards actually happen other support is just direct support of the show without also sending out rewards and things like that all right <sighs> let's get into today's episode uh, my guest today is kyoto a fellow mixed japanese person a person of japanese and uh, white american heritage mix for on a personal level as a mixed japanese person the reason why it's always so meaningful for me to connect with other mixed japanese is because for every mixed japanese person i meet i get a further insight into japanese-ness that i just don't have access to in my small window of japanese-ness japanese unlike a lot of other asian cultures we tend to assimilate when we go elsewhere and so getting that uh, dedicated you know, rich cultural experience within a community doesn't happen for a lot of us that are Japanese or mixed Japanese here in the United States in particular. And so I have a very small bubble of my Japanese grandma and some of my extended family in Hawaii. But beyond that, I didn't really get to participate in a broader Japanese uh, cultural experiences if my family was not present. Uh, so every time I meet another mixed Japanese, that's why I get so enthusiastic about it because of, with every conversation I have, I learn something that I did not get exposed to growing up. And speaking with Kyoto is no different. The insights that they shared with me on this discussion really even has me assessing like how to prepare myself for when I have my Japanese experience in Japan when I can get out there eventually. Two things that I want to highlight is there's a few times that we use some Japanese words um, really context-free for each other in our conversation because we're both um, Japanese and we understand this part of the language. Um, but I realized we didn't uh, translate those words in the discussion. I realized that after the editing process. Uh, so I have a few words that I'm going to define for you here. Some of them you can have gathered from context, um, but some we did not clarify. And so if you don't have the context, I wanted to make sure that I shared those with you. And some of those words you've heard me say before as well. And whether or not I've defined them, I, I don't know. So I'm going to do it all here. Uh, the first word is hafu. Hafu was used by Kyoto early on as a, as a, a way of that other people are identifying um, them and basically it's just the English word half with a Japanese pronunciation and it has now been adopted within Japanese culture to express a mixed Japanese person now depending on the way it is used though sometimes it can be used in derision or to divide a mixed Japanese person to separate them from uh, a quote full Japanese person or real quote 
real Japanese person. Um, and sometimes people own that term in sort of a reclamation type of way and, and find some, some form of empowerment in it. So I would say that if you're not of Japanese heritage and you're not used to using this word, make sure that the person that you're speaking to that is mixed Japanese uh, lets you know if they are comfortable with this term or not. Hafu just means half in English, but is now adopted by the Japanese language. Now, the term I use for half, um, or the term my family uses, is hanbun, which does mean half in Japanese. It is the Japanese word for half. So we would describe my mother and her sisters, say, as hanbun nihonjin, meaning half Japanese. Um, when you put jin at the end of a descriptor that is either racial, ethnic, or, or um, nationality, uh, you're expressing that you're talking about a person in this case. So um, the type of people that we describe in this episode, um, nihonjin, Japanese person, hakujin, white person, kokojin, black person, uh, amerikajin, American person. Uh, so we do say amerikajin and we do say hakujin um, in describing um, Kyoto's mother. And uh, and then, of course, you may have heard me on the show many times describe myself as kokojin, nihonjin or, or you know, even hakujin to a degree um, because that is my mix. Uh, two other words that come up that I don't use, but I am aware of is either kwahu or kota. These are descriptors of mixed Japanese people that are a quarter. If we're going into percentage conversation, uh, kwahu is just an attempt to match hafu. It doesn't make any sense. There's no connection to it in either English or Japanese. It's just been like, we're just associating these two words together and putting together. I don't use it because it seems like nonsense to me. I also try not to talk in, in terms of percentages anymore. And so that's another reason why it's nonsense to me. Uh, kota is not unlike hafu in that it's really just the English word for quarter pronounced in a Japanese way and has been adopted within Japanese society as a useful word to describe how Japanese you might be. And I say all of that in quotations. Um, uh, so kota was another word that came up. The way that I have been taught to describe myself as a quarter Japanese, which I technically am, is yonbon no ichi, meaning one of four. Uh, and so like literally a quarter. So if I, in my in my family, the way we would have been described as yonbon no ichi nihonjin, um, meaning we are a quarter Japanese. Again, I stay away from percentages now, but it is part of the conversation that we had. So I wanted to make sure y'all knew the words we were using in case we didn't define them. Some of them we did and some of them we did not. And the last one that I will express is uh, Nikkei, which is sort of a Japanese person either born or raised outside of Japan. Um, I think of this term, and I might be incorrect, but I do believe that this term is really used to describe the first generation of person that is outside of Japan, although it is possible that it may suit um, even for someone like my grandmother who was raised in Japan but then left and hasn't been back in you know 60 years, possibly. She might be presumed as a Nikkei if she were to go back. Um, whether or not that is accurate, it, it, it's just a... It's an assumption that Japanese people would put on a Japanese person that might not be quote, quoting as, quote, real Japanese because they clearly show an influence of um, being outside of the culture in some way, shape or form. Um, what we don't talk about in this episode, but in a broader conversation, when you talk about what generation of person you are raised outside of the of Japan, um, Nisei, Sansei. Uh, those are generations of people. So I would be described as, as a um, sansei because I'm the third generation person here. Uh, my grandmother is um, Issei because she's from Japan. My mother is Nisei because she's second generation of Japanese person here, but first generation born in the United States. And I'm sansei because I'm third generation here, but second generation born here in the United States. Uh, we don't talk about that, but it's uh, I'm separating that from Nikkei. Uh, because it's a different type of designator. And again, this is something that people put on us probably. Um, some of it are descriptors of the time and, and generation that we are, and some of it is really just a way to separate us, a way to say you're not coding as, quote, real Japanese, and so I need to figure out where you are in this. And so Nikkei could be one of those ways. And I feel like we need to tell you if that's what we are. Uh, rather than you telling us if that's what we are. Uh, same with hafu or hanbun 
or quota or whatever. Um, these we're Japanese people. We just happen to be mixed, and and that's a difference. And so I say that also to bring up a quote that Kyoto does say in this episode, which I don't want to get lost because it was beautiful, and that is that mixed people deserve monoracial people to expand their view. Meaning, if I tell you, I am ethnically Black Japanese and British white, but I identify culturally as Black and Japanese. You need to accept that as the view that you perceive me in versus whatever you've decided for me. Um, and uh, that is something actually that a lot of mixed Japanese struggle with because Japanese from Japan or even uh, monoracial Japanese that were born in Japan but grew up here or but come here do treat us like we're very, very different from them. When in a case of someone like Kyoto who grew up in Japan, his entire up until that point, um, identity would have been Japanese. He just happened to have a white mother. And so to say that somehow he's not getting full cultural Japanese-ness uh, is just wrong and inaccurate and insane. So, um, so again, to quote Kyoto, mixed people deserve monoracial people to expand their view. And that is what today's episode is called. So without further ado, please join me in welcoming our latest primo, <laughs> or Itoko, because it's Japanese, uh, to the Militantly Mixed family, Kyoto. Oh, wait, one last thing. One more ado. Uh, Kyoto actually produced a, published a book recently called Python for Chemistry. I'm going to put a link in the show notes for that. So if that is an intersection of information and knowledge that you would be interested in, um, Python, the coding language, and chemistry, please check on that link and help support uh, a fellow cousin in their um, in their work out on these streets. Okay. Again, please welcome our latest cousin to the Melody Mix family, Kyoto. I am joined by Kyoto today. Kyoto, why don't you introduce yourself and uh, let's get into it. Hello. Uh, thanks for having me on the show. It's uh, wonderful to meet you, Charmaine. I'm uh, currently a postdoc in uh, the math department at, um, at, at the university. And I am a mixed Japanese. Uh, my father is from Japan and my mother is white from, uh, with uh, US nationality. So I, don't, I only know a couple of folks that are where their fathers are the are the Japanese parent uh -huh. and just what little I know about you already <laughs> you have very similar things going on <laughs> so at one point we'll talk a little bit about maybe the difference of having a Japanese mother or grandmother or versus a mm -hmm. Japanese father so you're studying you're studying math and what's your what's your future goal what's the, uh -huh. the... oh I've uh, just completed my PhD this year Okay. And um, oh, I'm uh -huh, looking to um, uh, start working at the for a pharmaceutical company. So pharmaceutical. I'm very much uh -huh, looking forward to it. Yeah. So let's get into a little bit of just kind of uh -huh. where where you where you start in your mixedness. Um, you know, growing up with parents from two different countries, and uh, I'm assuming bouncing probably between or mm -hmm. visiting one at a time and things like that. Um, what did you understand about yourself as a mixed kid with parents from two different places? Yeah, thank you for that question. And I guess like my identity hasn't always been mixed Japanese and mm. it took a lot of years of um, reflection and experiences to eventually um, arrive uh, to the point that I am. And I was uh, uh, born in Michigan during when my father was um, uh, completing his uh, master's uh, in Michigan. And then we moved to Japan. So uh, my earliest memories are from Japan and growing up in Japan. So, and there's, uh, or growing up, I, I would be referred to as Hafu, 
for describing somebody who's mixed with a Japanese parent and a non-Japanese parent. Mm -hmm. So growing up, I always had the sense uh, surrounded by other Japanese people that I'm, I might have the Japanese papers or uh, memories and experiences and family, but it didn't, uh, I, I felt there was an emphasis on the part that distinguished me. So growing up, I thought what that meant was that I was white mm. and Hafe. So white I, versus uh, like a Medikajin? Uh, to me, uh, the only white person I knew growing up was my mother mm -hmm. uh, and my two grandparents who I visited. So to me, I or as a child, I uh, didn't have a good distinguishing of what Amerikajin represented mm -hmm. and what Hafe oh, okay. represented. So like they might have been saying both <laughs> type of thing or yeah, essentially right. non, non. Um... So in my time, because I, I, I know I'm quite a bit older than you, we, we were just, we were Hanbun. Like that's, <laughs> that was kind of the way Hafu hadn't uh, happened yet. Like the terminology hadn't happened yet. And, I see um, that. And my, so my, my mother and her siblings are Hafu. Mm -hmm. um, and I guess I, it's not as popular, but there's the uh, Kwafu, which I don't think is, I don't think it works. <laughs> uh -huh. um, but the Yonbunichi, I guess. Um, oh, okay. Got it. <laughs> uh, which is more is what I am. Uh -huh. And, uh, and so, but that's, it's not, it's not easy to walk around and, you know, Yonbunichi yeah. um, <laughs> <laughs> uh -huh. So for us, it was Amerikaji. Like every oh, our family, even our Japanese family who came to the states, the same thing. They would refer to us as like that was that was how they paid attention to, or that's how they accepted us. So we weren't even like really able to say, you mm -hmm. know, like I'm Japanese. They'd say like you you weren't born there. Why do you think? Mm -hmm. Why do you think you're Japanese? Um, so in your I case, sure. were you going to school with them? Um, with uh, Japanese children or a mix or Amer American children? Uh, I, I think I knew maybe uh, um, one or two mixed students, but I was in the public school uh, mm -hmm. with the majority monoracial Japanese mm -hmm. kids. So that was my upbringing. I was in uh, Yokohama, Japan, mm -hmm. which is very close to Tokyo. And I moved to the US when I was uh, 15 years old. Mm. Um, I guess like the references I had was like visiting my grandparents and like watching movies. So that was quite uh, different. When I arrived to the US, I, I guess those were the references and everything was quite new. And um, uh, I spoke with my mother in English at home. Uh, but um, so I thought I could communicate just fine. But once I arrived, um, I had a, a, a lot of trouble communicating. And I remember spending a, a, a long time with uh, homework, which involved reading. Mm. Um, I actually couldn't, or I, I had to sound out um, each words to read at the time. And yeah, so. Because there's, um, there's, not, there's not a lot of crossover. Like the consonant yeah. vowel sounds are, can be so different that, um, the sounding That's out right. process can be very frustrating going That's right. into English from, from Japanese for sure. That's right. Um, so yeah. did you, did they put you in uh, English as a second language courses <laughs> and stuff when you got, when you got here? That's right. And it was, a yeah, that was a very helpful part <laughs> in my high school. So it was just for the first year, but I, I remember, yes, that was a very nice experience. <laughs> mm. So, so and, as, as you uh -huh. grew out of like high school and stuff like that and going into college, were you still um, dealing with the, like, what's the, what's the best word for it? The, um, <laughs> I guess that tran the, the constant translation that might be uh -huh. happening when you're, when you're reading. That's a good point. Um, I think I was able to adapt enough in the first year to not have the language barrier. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think there was a fairly large cultural barrier uh, <laughs> I still need to work through. So I don't know. I just didn't, or it might be part of being a young person, but just I didn't know how to conduct myself or, mm. <laughs> um, or I don't know, some, something I observed with or learning to speak was you need to give like answers which are expected because mm -hmm. otherwise it, <laughs> I don't know, it, 
like disrupts a conversation and I, right. yeah so like kind of learning those cues or expectations or references was right. I, I remember being a challenge for me mm. so and also arriving uh, in Michigan I was uh, in a area with a large amount of white people mm. and that gave me more of a reference to understand um that my mother's experience was quite different from kind of I guess the uh, collective experience of that gave me more of a context of uh American identity and racial identity mm. and I realized um that I've been collapsing my mother's identity into uh being a white foreigner mm. um rather than fully uh without a full understanding. So, and uh, my mother was uh, born in Colombia uh, and right now I'm visiting uh, her birthplace in Medellin. So that's been- So she's, she uh-huh. is a Hakujin, but she was just born in Colombia? Uh-huh, that's right. Oh, okay, um, that's interesting. <laughs> I'm sure that's a big story too. Uh, do, so you said, you said at the beginning that you didn't really have like necessarily a Japanese or like mixed Japanese identity yeah. Was it coming to the States that made you more aware of your Japanese-ness or that's, right. that's how, that's how you feel that that was. That's right. Mm-hmm. So, cause, um, I guess growing up, it was, um, constantly being told, oh, but you're mixed or half right. Or, mm-hmm. oh, but you're, uh, American, right. Mm-hmm. And I just kind of accepted it as given. But once I arrive, I realize, you know, this isn't. Uh, that this identity is different Mm. and the Japanese identity, the mixed identity, those were things that I uh, uh, began to have to assert or claim Mm. as Mm. I was, um, or later uh, than my childhood. Mm -hmm. When did you, when do you think you started to, well, I guess, let me just ask more directly. How Mm -hmm. do you, how do you feel like you identify yourself now? Uh, I identify myself as mixed Japanese. Okay. Uh, so there was a bad experience when I was working in Japan last year. Mm. Um, I just arrived um, for an internship from the U.S. and I didn't have my uh, insurance card. I had a grace period after arriving, but it was COVID, so mm. um, there was a two-week wait time, and then with understanding of um. It, it, it can't be applied for immediately after arrival. Mm. So, and that I just moved into my apartment and I needed a mug. So I went shopping and then I got stopped by the police who asked me to present my documentation. And they just couldn't wrap their mind around that I'm Japanese and that I just arrived from the States. And that's why mm. I, I haven't, I, I don't have those documentations and I'm not walking around with a passport. <laughs> so, right. so, and so I would try to explain, or, you know, I was speaking in Japanese and at the time and I'm just saying, yes, I'm Japanese and it's, and they just weren't accepting that. So yeah. like, so with racial profiling, the police are uh, very pushy uh, in Japan. So, um, because this uh, older officer didn't accept my answer, he would just keep rephrasing and then um, putting his own thoughts of what I am. Mm. So he was saying, okay, so you were in America and then you became Japanese and then you're here. Or like, um, and that just went on and it was so frustrating that, you know, um, they wouldn't answer why they stopped me or or the way uh, they were talking was also kind of aggressive. Mm. Um, and it got to a point where I was so frustrated and he say, oh, you're Nikke. Nikke is um, a foreign born Japanese or foreign, uh, foreign with Japanese roots, mm-hmm. which I am not. I am just Japanese. Yeah. So, but I just gave up in that moment and just said yes, just to like have him like, just to be able like, to get out of that. That's right. Yeah. And that, that was a weight that followed me the entire time I was there, that mm-hmm. this this person made me give up who I am because right. he couldn't, his worldview didn't have a space for 
space for my experience. It's so hard. Like I try to explain it too. I mean, even mm-hmm. just being American born, uh, Jap- mixed Japanese, mm-hmm. your own family in my case are telling yeah. me I'm not Japanese, but I'm, I'm yeah. from America where my mindset is that your ethnicity is what you're explaining. Yeah. That's but right. for them, it's their nationality. But also if you're Hafu, then there's, the, mm-hmm. then there's, well, the foreign is bigger than the Japanese, which I, <laughs> Yep. I'm so baffled by this idea um, mm-hmm. of just like, do Japanese not value our own bloodline so much? <laughs> like, is it so much smaller than every other bloodline that you're automatically what the other half mm-hmm. is? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and it doesn't matter if your mother is the white parent or your father mm-hmm. is the white parent or any other race. Yeah. You're just that. You're not yeah. Japanese. And that is so it's not unsimilar to what we have in the United States, the one drop rule for the descendants of African enslavement, uh, which was a tool used to keep black people um, under control. And so it's just the idea of being one drop of black blood makes you black. So even if you're, if it's four generations back, you're, Mm -hmm. you're black. It's like the opposite of that in, in Japan. It's like, even if it's a little bit of non-Japanese, that's mm-hmm. what you are. Um, yeah, that's the thing. Like it's it's one of these problems that I I can't explain it well. Like I can explain it to non-Japanese, but mm-hmm. Japanese will understand of just like we're not. Mm-hmm. I mean, even if you were full ethnically Japanese but born here, same mm-hmm. problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you would that's be right. viewed as non-Japanese. So that's right. It's pretty wild. And yeah, that's uh, another thing. Like, um, there's these boxes that people with like either foreign roots or experiences get put in. So, like, if you're mixed, it's like, okay, specify what mix. It's hopper or uh, quota, or or if it's like a different birthplace and then return to Japan, uh, then oh, but you're re- returning. So like there's all these caveats that put to distinguish from, I guess what I wrongly would describe as like pure or authentic Japanese identity, and like the um what I realized was that I or that or that's just such a small way to think of like, mm-hmm. you know, people deviate a little bit from what's expected and then suddenly they're like they bear this lifelong label that's not even their choice. Whereas like uh, Japan has extensive history of like trade with um, Europe um, and migration to South America and um, uh, unfortunate involvement in the World War II. And that accompanies like uh, different stories of that don't neatly fit into this one supreme thought of what Japanese identity needs to be. Right. I guess. So did having an experience like that kind of fuel more of the assertion going forward that the way you identify as mixed Japanese is Uh hear me say this, I am mixed Japanese. That's right. So I intentionally never say uh, my mix as being uh, half or some percent or part because that what that does is try to break me apart into monoracial identities for other people to uh, more easily uh, understand but I think mixed people deserve monoracial folks to expand (laughs) the world yeah yeah that's right absolutely and for us like I I growing up in my whole life we Mm -hmm. were always like we were the different ones I see. And I, I, I hate that idea. And it took into adulthood for me to start saying that everybody was different from me mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. I'm the main character of my story. Yep. You know, like yeah. how, how is it that I'm the person I have to live with every single day, but mm-hmm. I'm going to tell you I'm different. No, <laughs> you're different. I'm living with me. And we're, we're like actually more, not less. So that idea mm-hmm. that we become less of whatever monoracial groups yeah. Um, our parents come from uh, yeah. is always is always a big part of frustration. Um, so I'm I'm glad to hear that you're asserting it more. I'm I'm sad that you had to experience oh. that and knowing that it'll probably happen again. Mm-hmm. You know, just because the culture, like I don't think uh, U.S. Americans really can understand how homogenous Japan is mm-hmm. compared to 
even with the U.S. being predominantly white in most spaces uh-huh. that people would travel, you uh-huh. still don't understand that yeah. kind of homogeny until until you're um, experiencing it really That's on right. the Asian side, probably. Mm-hmm. Although there's a lot of other places where most everybody is monoracial in some place. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, we were talking a little bit about uh-huh. your experiences in Japan. You've had some issues uh-huh. like in workplace, but like in terms of, say, positive aspects of your of your identity, um, being both sort of experiencing a multinational Uh experience, experiencing multicultural, uh, Mm multi-ethnic and things like that. Mm -hmm. I I want to highlight like all the great things uh, there's been with being mixed. And uh, one of it was um, once I uh, come to the US and realized my mother's experience was quite different from the uh, people I've met um, Mm. that um, caused me to reflect more and try to understand more from my, uh, uh, where my mother was coming from. Mm. And, um, I had, um, the, uh, a great opportunity to visit, uh, Colombia with her in 2019, right before mm. the pandemic. Oh. So, yeah. The pandemic missed all of us up so much. I, was. I had Derailed so many so plans. <laughs> so, but yeah, um, it was really amazing to see like Bogotá and Medellín where she grew up. Mm. And it led me more to learn about um, the culture she grew up in, in Colombia, as well as uh, learning Spanish. And I'm very lucky to uh, be able to uh, spend more time in Colombia now. Mm. So I'm very grateful of that. So I've heard, um, well, from my first Japanese teacher, but a couple other people since then that Japanese to Spanish is a lot easier than Japanese to English and at some people uh-huh. like my Japanese teacher from from college he tried to learn English and he struggled so he learned Spanish first because there's a lot of shared really? sounds and, uh, and uh-huh. in some cases words and then he learned English from Spanish interesting so, that's uh... so when he translates he has to translate back through three uh-huh. different languages in one go can uh-huh. you imagine like, the frustration a... of your brain also so strategic like mm. I yeah like that's so intentional <laughs> and yeah. have you in in yeah. Colombia have you stumbled on mixed Japanese there because there from what I understand there's a pretty large population of Japanese there as well uh I haven't um but also I haven't been uh long enough to mm. really make connections uh or to um yeah um, and there's still a pandemic going on. We just some we go outside sometimes now instead of no times. There's that too. Mm. Yeah. So. So your mom um, actually has a pretty interesting experience in that she grew up, or you know, born <laughs> in Colombia, grew up with with uh, Colombian culture, uh-huh. but is American and then married uh-huh. Japanese and lived in Japan too. So, no. like, what what would what's her <laughs> defining culture then? Does she assign herself Colombia as a identity um i think american uh just because she's been in the u.s for such a long time Mm. but yeah then again she's been in japan for such a long time too so (laughs) um yeah i i guess like uh but i guess like american is the most concise Mm. answer for that but yeah it uh it was much later in life that i learned about third culture kids Mm. uh tck's (laughs) Yeah. Um, and I realized like, um, how nuanced that experience might be. Mm. So I, so I, I'm still a Spanish learner, or I'm still learning to speak Spanish, mm-hmm. but my, uh, aunt is fluent in Spanish and I just never questioned growing up my aunt on my father's oh, like, side. Why? So, <laughs> yeah. And like, I asked my mother, uh, as a, uh, as a grown up in my twenties, why does uh, Noriko speak Spanish? And uh, my mother apparently taught her. And then, oh, really? Okay. Yeah. And like, I was over here like, but you didn't teach me. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> That's funny. That, that kind of stuff actually creeps up on me a lot. It's just like, yeah. given, especially now, given how much I'm struggling to learn. I'm actually uh-huh. learning Spanish and Japanese at the same time. Oh wow! Because I've always wanted to to be more yeah. fluent in Japanese, of course, because of my own identity. But um, I'm moving to Mexico soon, and so yeah. I need to learn Spanish, right? Oh my god! Like I'm so old <laughs> at this point, my brain is just not adapting to the the learning very well, and mm. 
I mean, it's not that I'm not learning. It's just the, the, the slowness in thinking. And if yeah. I just had some yeah. more exposure when I was younger, you know, yeah. I think it would be a lot easier, at least on the Japanese side. In the Spanish yeah. side, I straight up resisted learning Spanish because I grew oh. up in Southern California, which yeah. has a very large Mexican population. My stepmother was mm-hmm. Mexican and we didn't get along. And so when it came time to pick a language to learn in school, yeah. I picked French just <laughs> so that I wouldn't have to learn uh, uh-huh. anything associated with my stepmom. Which mm-hmm. is like a teenage thing. Like mm-hmm. I was like, super, yeah. it would have been far more practical for me to learn Spanish when I was in Southern California as a kid. But no. I was like, no, I'm protesting against my <laughs> stepmom. And oh, I learned no. French. Okay. I spoke a little. I could mm-hmm. like I traveled to France. I was able to speak it and stuff. And then of course oh, now amazing. French is gone uh-huh. because I don't use it. Um, mm-hmm. And here I am, like 45 years old, trying to learn Spanish for the first uh-huh. time when I could have learned it 30 years ago. And yeah, would have been fine. But yeah, I get it. I I commend <laughs> that you're trying to do it too because it's a way of getting a closeness, an understanding to your mother as well. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah, that's um, interesting. Yeah, and yeah, it's uh, been great. I've only known uh, Colombia through stories before visiting it, um, um, and just without the language, I know there's like a barrier that I'm only experiencing a very surface mm. um surface level so yeah True, um yeah. learning the language is very important for me so and you said uh, uh you're learning it later but um i just want to say there's language is never too late to learn no i uh, absolutely yeah uh-huh. and if i can move around the world and pick up languages as i go uh-huh. like that would be sort of an ideal thing <laughs> to me um yeah, i'd like to spend like... a few years in different countries at a time to kind of, mm-hmm. if not gain yeah. fluency, at least gain some sort of casual conversation, yeah. you know, um, mm-hmm. ability. Uh, but I've like, my whole family comes from different places and I grew up in the States and I've been in the States my whole life. And with the exception of, of like traveling for vacation and stuff like that, I haven't really gotten to experience, um, well, in a different way. I haven't been able to experience being the non-dominant culture in a place for an extended period of time. That being said, I am also a member of the non-dominant culture in the country I was born in. So I guess it's a combination of um, where I guess language being a major part of that, not being, you know, the native, not speaking the native language of the area that I'm in is something that um, I kind of want to understand because I want to, I want to understand better my grandmother's experience, you know, yeah. Chan's experience coming here and how crazy it was in the 50s to just yeah, like marry exactly. a white guy and move to America, you know, like it just a military guy, but still like it, I can't imagine how bold that was for her <laughs> in her time period versus it's not that bold of a move for someone in my time period, you know, to just pack up and <laughs> move to another country. Um, so it's, a, it's kind of that it's the adventure aspect of it I think but I think yeah. also it's that desire to uh, um, learn and appreciate another country uh, another cult- country's culture where I'm not the focus <laughs> you know and I'm not really the focus here but I'm also an American citizen who has light skin I know that I, I experience some privileges that um <laughs> even people in my own family, darker skinned people in my own family don't experience. So I guess I'm just looking into um, uh, like a level of extra empathy that I can gain Mm -hmm. for the people I'm related to who did that, you know, who moved to different countries. My mother has lived um, because of military. My mother lived in Turkey and Japan and the Philippines and stuff when she was younger. My, my Mm -hmm. father, because of the military was born in Germany, you know, um, to have all these international people around me and really not have the same experience. This is just my version yeah. of, of trying to experience what they had. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think also the appeal as a mixed person to go somewhere mm-hmm. else, like, and tell me if you feel like this, cause I, I don't mm-hmm. know if it's just something I'm doing in my head is that uh, in the States I'm mixed. I'm uh-huh. mixed because I'm ambiguous in my presentation. You uh-huh. can't look at me and say, I absolutely know that this person is, fill in the blank race right yeah and so i have to tell you what i am i have to tell mm-hmm. you that i'm black and japanese and that my um 
father's mother's from you know Britain and stuff like that that I have to tell you that otherwise you won't know mm-hmm. whereas when I'm not in the United States I'm an American and that is That's so it. bizarre to me because American culture is not like that you know well at least mm-hmm. okay for brown yeah. people you know you don't walk around being like I'm an American I'm an American so I no. don't really feel an American identity until mm-hmm. I leave the country and when I leave the country and I'm told I'm American, my first reaction is to always say no, <laughs> which is very strange because mm-hmm. I am. I understand I was born in the U.S., so I'm yeah. a, you know, U.S. American at least, or uh-huh. North American or however, depending on which countries call us what, mm-hmm. because I lead with my ethnicities. I'm black and Japanese and, and English and Welsh and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm curious to see how my Americanness starts to fade over time. I see. Uh-huh. In terms of just like the citizenship or the nation, maybe not the citizenship, the nationality of myself. I don't mm-hmm. think of myself mm-hmm. as really having a nationality. I do think yeah. of my, even though I have one, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, I think of myself as very ethnic and culturally bound. Yeah. Um, so like in your case, having mm-hmm. grown up in two, in two places, mm-hmm. uh, do you feel... Japanese in um, in the states and American in Japan. Uh, uh, I think that's a good question. And for me, uh, the Japanese identity is just very solid and fixed. Okay. Okay. Um. So when I'm in the U.S. and or lived and uh, grew up after uh, 15 years old, mm-hmm. um, the way I view it is that I I was a Japanese person, you know, uh, experiencing all these like key um cap you know capstone moments in life mm-hmm. like um coming of age and uh graduating so uh so so on and so forth and so so it doesn't i think in the sense that um that japanese identity was something that was very solidified once i moved to the u.s okay is true that makes sense. but yeah so but that was more of a uh kind of a realization of um or uh knowing knowing uh more of something i learned about myself and not necessarily mm-hmm. not not the mindset that um influences me by the environment i see yeah if that makes sense no yeah, yeah. um because a lot of times are like the way we identify and the way we're identified externally don't yeah. match up yeah. and uh, sometimes with mixed kids we end up just defaulting with what other people tell us because it's, i see you know I, I guess, like in the in the story that you told earlier, get me out of this situation. Mm-hmm. Okay, fine, I'll just agree. Yeah. And in doing that, you mm-hmm. kind of take a chunk out of yourself, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, I think as we get older, or as as mixedness is now a subject that can be talked about a little bit yeah. more openly, us being more fixed in our identity. Not fixed. I, I still want to say that identity is very fluid, but being more mm-hmm. fixed in. I tell you what my identity is, not you That's tell right. me what I, my identity is. I think that is, mm-hmm. that comes with like time challenges, yeah. overcoming, thinking through, you know, all that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. Yeah. So I know, I know it's tough work and, and I know sometimes it just sucks, mm-hmm. but yeah. um, have an access to more things, you know? Yeah. You just do. No, I agree. And um, it's been, a really amazing gift um, that I could appreciate as an adult to have my mother's background, to have my father's background, mm-hmm. life stories and um, family history. So I'm very grateful and very happy to be born the way I was. Yeah, <laughs> so. that's good. Mm-hmm. I certainly hope people are happy with being mixed because yes. there's, there's so many people I've spoken to over the years where yeah. it's tough because they live in such isolation or they're the only yeah. member of their family maybe that's mixed and without having a whole bunch of people in your own family understand your deal, Mm -hmm. like that can be very Mm -hmm. difficult, um, which is why I think developing mixed community is so important. Um, When you are in Japan, Mm -hmm. is there a way to like create community with other hafu, like other people that, do you know other mixed folks when you're there? I do. Um, uh, I've uh, met a lot of mixed folks and this was very, in contrast to uh, my upbringing where I was in a very, uh, or uh, uh, the pu- it was a public school. So I imagine mm-hmm. 
maybe um, other mixed people might have arrived later in life to Japan. Mm-hmm. Um, I could also foresee a case where other mixed people or uh, the parent, parents of mixed children might also have the choice of either going, having the children be in a public school or mm-hmm. uh, international school. So I imagine those might be some of the reasons I uh, didn't understand or didn't see, uh, see other mixed people. Right. Well, I mean, it's good that you, there's a, at least a chance <laughs> of uh-huh. being able to connect. I, I do watch a lot of YouTube, like mixed people living in Japan type YouTube uh-huh. things just to just to get an idea, um, because I do hope to to go there at least for a little yeah. while at some point. And it, it does seem like the people that I follow, they don't know other mixed people, but what they end up creating community with was is foreigners. I see. Like, you know, because maybe they have a non- Japanese parent and so they're just it's just easier for them to be mm-hmm. in community with other foreign-born people who are living in Japan um, but it would be nice to know that there's like a little mixed group that you could like <laughs> you can meet with on the weekends or something uh-huh. I don't know. Yeah. well we, we we are coming a little bit uh, near the end so I just okay. want to ask you before we get out of here because um you know, online and offline, we've talked about some things that are a little bit difficult about maneuvering mm-hmm. as a mixed person, but what is something that you love most about being mixed? The uh, thing I love the most uh, being mixed was the uh, people and places my parents have allowed me to connect. Yeah, you've had, you've seemed to have had like a lot of access to different cultures and, and different stories and stuff like that. So, so that's pretty mm-hmm. fun. I feel like we're kind of, with that kind of exposure, we become far more empathetic Mm-hmm. people maybe not to not to say monoracials can't be empathetic uh but just that we know we get so exposed to to different cultures and different people and different places mm-hmm. um you know in, inside our own families let alone you know just out in the world so it's a mm-hmm. nice opportunity to just be able to see people in this very broad spectrum of identities uh you know which is very nice yeah. Uh, do you want to share with people how they can find you or how, or do you want to share on social media? How do you, what do you want to do? Oh, sure thing. Uh, my Instagram is uh, Kiki underscore underscore Nafiki. Um, and uh, I've uh, recently published a book, Python for Chemists. So if you're interested in uh, learning the uh, intersection of chemistry uh, uh, while using Python, um, the co- please coding language, right? Yes, uh, the coding okay. language. <laughs> so that that sounds like something my partner might be really interested <laughs> in. I'll look that up. Um, I'll okay. put a link to that in the show notes as well. So oh, thank you. Out. Well, it was really nice talking to you and getting to know you. For people that aren't familiar with you yet, you've been a follower of Militantly Mixed for quite a while, and and some of the other platforms that I that I also do, I, I see your presence there as well. So I really just want to say thank you for the support that you've given. Um, me and the show for for so long and um, to finally get a chance to actually chat with you versus just having you as a name behind a you know mm-hmm. screen or whatever <laughs> is very nice um, plus also and I say this all the time I'm I'm selfishly more really excited when I see other people that share my mix and in particular with mm-hmm. Japanese um, uh, for me, I guess I'll say that my my isolation as a mixed Japanese, I, mm-hmm. I only had my family members to be Japanese with. I, mm-hmm. I didn't start having like Japanese friends or mixed Japanese friends until I was quite a bit older. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so for me, it's just always exciting to be like, oh, you might understand this thing that I, uh-huh. that I do with or like, you know, there's topics that I talk about in very Japanese ways because I grew up with my Japanese grandmother. But American mm-hmm. kids don't get and so it makes me feel mm-hmm. very mm-hmm. non-American you know I guess in, in mm-hmm. some place so it's always nice to connect with other mixed Japanese so hopefully we'll we'll stay yeah. in contact <laughs> yeah <laughs> so we can Japanese together <laughs> that would be amazing please um let me know if I could help with any like sure. uh Japanese learning and um and yeah I uh, want to thank you for like uh creating a mixed space online for mixed people to be heard and represented like it's a, a really amazing uh show that you're running thank you I, I really appreciate it Militantly Mix is a main hustle media podcast produced and hosted by me, Charmaine Fury. Music is by David Bogan, The One. 
You can follow us on social media on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Militantly Mixed. If you'd like to become a sponsor of Militantly Mixed, please go to patreon.com slash militantlymixed for monthly sponsorship or paypal.me slash militantlymixed for a one-time only donation. And if you like what you hear on Militantly Mixed, please subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And don't forget to be your mixed-ass self. Main Hustle Media. Turn your side hustle into your main hustle.